What if we were wrong? It's the haunting question Barack Obama asked Ben Rhodes after Donald Trump was elected president in November 2016. Rhodes, as he writes in his new book, The World As It Is, was taken aback. Wrong about what, he asked the president. Obama gives an answer that to some smacks of condescension, but also betrays some doubts. He had tried to do the right thing in restoring America's image around the world and pulling back from the adventurous foreign policy of the Bush years, but now he fears maybe he missed something. Maybe we pushed too far. Maybe people just want to fall back into their tribe, he tells Rhodes. In his book, Rhodes gives a bird's-eye view of many of the foreign policy triumphs and setbacks of the Obama years, the killing of Osama bin Laden, the hopes of the Arab Spring, followed by the debacle of the Syria civil war, the Russian attack on the U.S. election. But it is a question Rhodes returns to in his prologue, what if we were wrong? We'll ask Rhodes about it on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. Uh, so, Dan, uh, the uh, Rhodes book is quite fascinating for those of us who lived through that era uh, and reported on it. But uh, there are a couple of developments this week that uh, I think we should talk about. And, you know, the one that really uh, stuck out to me was um, Bill Clinton out there for the first time in his first interview since the Me Too movement, um, basically pushing back on the idea that he had to apologize to Monica Lewinsky and uh, going after Craig Melvin of NBC about uh, imagined facts. Yeah, look, it was it was a pretty testy um, response from uh, President Clinton. I don't want to make too much uh, of a single interview. Um, you know, he's kind of out of practice. He was there to promote his new thriller with James Patterson. Um, although, you know, you think he would uh, be ready for those kinds of questions. Look, it, to a lot of people, this is going to smack of the kind of worst, the worst kind of boomer narcissism um, that he was often criticized for when he was president. He still, some will say, has a hard time swallowing his pride and, and fully taking responsibility for his actions. And then, you know, he kind of resorts to a kind of moral uh, self-justification that just reinforces that. So he, you know, makes the point that he's had two women chiefs of staff yeah. and as Arkansas governor, that he instituted a, a no sexual harassment policy, and that he defended, he was defending the Constitution. Yeah, well, that, that's what really struck me. When Clinton says, I was defending the Constitution, he's referring to um, what took place after the House Republicans impeached him at the end of 1998. But in the intro to this show, uh, in our uh, gallery of uh, famous presidential falsehoods, we include um, the famous line, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, um, which was said early on in January 98 after the story breaks. And um, it was a line and a position that essentially uh, prolonged the entire star investigation through that year. And uh, he was unwilling to uh, fess up to the truth uh, and tell the American public what what he'd done. Uh, and uh, as a result, um, the country went through that entire crisis of the uh, uh, Clinton Lewinsky drama. Um, and uh, I, you know, if I were there, I would have uh, followed up with the question, were you defending the Constitution when you lied to the American public after lying in your civil deposition in the Paula Jones case? Right, right, right. right. I mean, the point you're making is that the only reason he had to defend the Constitution was because he had a sexual affair with which his he intern, yeah, and yeah. he put the country uh, through, and he, yeah. which he lied about, and he put this country through through that ordeal. Right. So, you know... Um, you know, once again, um, it, it's you know it's a bit <laughs> narcissistic uh, then to come back and say that uh, that he was you know defending 
you know, defending the Constitution when it was um, uh, when it was in jeopardy because of his own. Well, let's talk about another profile in courage this week. Uh, uh, Somewhat. (laughs) Paul Ryan, the House Speaker, uh, speaking out, saying that I have seen no evidence uh, that there was any wrongdoing by the FBI in the Russia investigation. Uh, And uh, Ryan's getting some plaudits uh, from that uh, because he's breaking with his hardcore Republican base uh, in the House, uh, those who want to impeach uh, members of the Justice Department for not turning over documents about what the president calls Spygate. So, uh, yeah, I guess my reaction is, and I'll be interested in yours, Dan, uh, good for Ryan, but, you know, uh, would he be willing to speak out about those who keep propagating this conspiracy theory that uh, he acknowledges there's no evidence for? Yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, my favorite um, line on Twitter, I don't know who said this, but someone said, Trump's biggest lapdog just turned around and bit him. (laughs) I thought was pretty funny. Um, Look, it feels like uh, what Ryan is doing is kind of, in some ways, the minimum uh, he can do to to resurrect his own uh, badly tarnished reputation. And the problem is, and this is, I think, what you're getting at, and I agree with it, is it's his party, um, you know the, you know not just the far right wing of his party, but you know uh, broad swaths of the Republican Party who you know pretty much fully capitulated to to Trump and sacrificed their core values um, under uh, Ryan's leadership. And if he wants to redeem himself um, and and resurrect his his reputation, I think he's going to have to hold his party. Uh, accountable. And that means speaking out um, and not just saying, you know, expressing his own expressing his own personal conviction. Hey, I just want to say when I uh, referred to uh, Ryan before as a profile in courage, I was being somewhat satirical. I want the record to show that. Um, but we now have um, with us, uh, before we get to Ben Rhodes, somebody who's actually been caught up in the uh, Robert Mueller Russia investigation and the congressional investigations. Uh, and um, uh, it's somebody who has uh, recently described those investigations as a nightmare. Uh, It's uh, J.D. Gordon, uh, former Pentagon spokesman who served as the uh, chief of the foreign policy advisory team during the Trump campaign. Uh, J.D., welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. So you uh, wrote that uh, um, uh, this investigation has had real-life consequences for you. You described it as a living nightmare. Explain what you were talking about. Well, thank you, Mike, for the opportunity to discuss it with you today. Uh, I had a column last week in the Washington Times entitled The Trump-Russia Probe Endgame. And in it, I described a waking nightmare that I've experienced for the last, really, two years, I'd say. And you know a lot about it because you and I have talked quite often over the past uh, year and a half probably about Trump, Russia, and all things related to it. And what I believe, Mike, and, and your listeners can check it out online, is that the end game is really about four things, impeachment, imprisonment, bankruptcy, and defamation. All these things you hear about collusion, obstruction, financial crimes, even Stormy Daniels if it relates to Michael Avenatti, that is all just a pretext to attack the president and to attack all of his associates who helped win an election and destroy us. And so it's been a waking nightmare for me. It's cost me five-figure legal bills. It's uh, it's really taken a, um, a huge toll on me personally, uh, financially, professionally. I lost opportunities for a senior administration appointment. I've been kneecapped six ways to Sunday. So for those uh, who haven't read Russian Roulette, um, tell uh, – Tell us what your role was in the Trump campaign and how you came to be caught up in the investigation. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you for including me in Russian Roulette. I have a copy of the book here to get your signature later. I bought it at a real store at a Barnes & Noble, so I'm proud to say. You got it. That's why you're on the show. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, yeah, my role was to be the uh, national security advisor on the campaign. I was the only full-time national security advisor on the campaign. 
And part of that was to be the director of the National Security Advisory Committee. Now, in that, I reported to Senator Jeff Sessions, now the attorney general, because he was the chairman. And so the senator and I supervised a group of about 15 people. It was an advisory committee that really was somewhat peripheral, even though the senator and I were very much involved in the campaign. The rest of the group was really not. And unfortunately, a couple of the folks, Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, became this massive story, even though they weren't very involved in the campaign. They were involved and they were named advisors. So you were their handler. Yeah, I was. Uh, unfortunately, they were political novices and they made some bad decisions along the way. And I'm not saying they're bad people. They're not. Um, I got along well with George and with Carter. But unfortunately, they were basically led into a series of traps. We know an FBI informant was surveilling them, conducting human intelligence operations against them under the Obama administration. I think that's reprehensible. And I think the Congress needs to dig into it with all the subpoena power they can muster. But wait a second. When you say led into traps, I mean, Carter Page flew to Moscow on his own, uh, gave a speech, met with uh, Russian officials and lawmakers there. Uh, he had already been on the FBI's radar screen uh, as somebody who had uh, communications uh, with Russian spies in the United States. Um Papadopoulos, on his own, was meeting with these with this uh, Malt professor from Malta who had Kremlin connections, and the woman who was introduced to him as Putin's niece. He was trying to set up a uh, a, a summit between Trump and um, uh, and Putin. How do you uh, how how do you call this? Uh, say that they were led into traps. I, I'm not, I'm not following the logic there. Well, because of the FBI informant, Steve Stefan Halper, who basically struck up relationships with them. Uh, in one case, he paid for George's trip to go to the UK for a policy paper. I believe the amount was $3,000. He met Carter Page and established a, a lengthy relationship with him where he met with him numerous times and spoke with him numerous times to collect human intelligence, which means to spy on a political campaign, a political campaign that was in opposition to the administration at the time. Now, what they should have done, the FBI should have told Mr. Trump personally, look, we have concerns with a couple of your guys, even though, sure, they didn't have office space, they didn't have email accounts for the campaign, they didn't have any specific responsibilities. The FBI, when they had a briefing for Mr. Trump, they should have said, look, there are a couple guys, two, three guys we have concerns with. And we, we need to, to flesh this out. They didn't do that. J.D., you're, what you're talking about is, is that the FBI should have given what's uh, commonly referred to as defensive briefings. I think they did uh, ask the, the, the Trump campaign to report uh, anything they saw that was suspicious. I think there, there was some um, uh, communication like that. Um, but the informant that you're talking about, I mean, Paul Ryan uh, 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 just um, – uh, this week, um, you know, the House Speaker, one of the leaders of the Republican Party, just said that the FBI acted uh, completely appropriately um, in in using um, that informant. And by the way, that is what what the FBI does when they have suspicions about potential uh, criminal um, uh, conduct or, or 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 you know counterintelligence you know issues. They they use sources in the same way that reporters use sources. That's that's totally. Routine. So you're talking about it, you know, as if they sent in an undercover agent. It's not quite what happened, is it? Dan, they did. That's exactly what happened. Mike and I were just talking about this out in the lobby. We saw MSNBC and, and Speaker Ryan was um, was on there. As far as one of the clips, he was mentioning the uh, the FBI um, involvement, and this happened a lot on the campaign too with uh, Speaker Ryan. He'd say something that was slightly different, and it would get twisted all around and distorted, taken out of context, and blown into something that it really wasn't. What Speaker Ryan and some other Republicans, like Trey Gowdy and others, have said was that uh, there wasn't a spy inside the campaign, that the FBI was acting appropriately. Well, first of all, there's a semantic war going on between a spy in the campaign and a spy spying on the campaign who was not part of the campaign. So that's an issue of semantics. There was clearly someone con con conducting human intelligence operations that's spying on the campaign, a paid FBI informant. So that happened. 
as far as a brief to Mr. Trump, he didn't know what George or Carter were doing on any given day. He never even met Carter Page. Carter Page has acknowledged that. I barely knew what they were doing on a given day, and I was responsible for them. Did you, did you know about their communications with uh, various Russian figures? Well, for George Papadopoulos, I was aware, based on that March 31st, 2016 meeting at the old post office, which is now the Trump Hotel, it's under construction at the time, I was aware that he said at that meeting that he had contacts who could arrange a meeting with Putin. Uh, he mentioned that he had known the... Uh, Did you ask who those contacts were? No, I didn't. But he had mentioned at the meeting that uh, his friend was the um, Russian ambassador to the UK. And so that turns out not to be the case, actually. But that's what I believe he said at the meeting. Now, this is going back two years and and something from now. Uh, we didn't follow up on it because Senator Sessions shut that discussion down. And he said no one should talk about it again because it was a bad idea. What did Trump say? Well, that's another subject that gets blown way out of proportion. You'd have to ask President Trump what he said and what he has said. Well, but you were there, so I was I'm asking there. you. Well, what he has said, I'm not going to speak for him. Uh, what he has said is it was a meeting that he didn't remember much about, and that was just, uh, I think, in November he was confronted with this. So I'll leave it at that. I mean, the president can speak for himself. What, what do you think of uh, you know, the, the famous uh, June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower uh, what was your reaction uh, when you uh, saw the email uh, from Don Don Trump Jr. Um, about the meeting with the uh, uh, Russian uh, you know, people tied to the Russian government, in which he's, they were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton, and he said, "If if it, if, the, if it is what they say it is, uh, then I you know I love it," or something to that effect. How did you react to that? Well, after I left my uh, House Intelligence Committee hearing, I think it was the House Intelligence Committee hearing or the, perhaps it was the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, whichever hearing it was, it was in July of 2017. And I'm in the car on the way back to my lawyer's office with uh, my attorney. And I get a text from Jim Acosta of CNN saying, do you have Renat's phone number? And I'm thinking, Renat, what's he talking about? Who's Renat? I told that to my lawyer. What? What's he talking about? So I got a hold of Jim, and he told me the whole story. And he said, you haven't seen the news? I, I said, no, I've been in a hearing uh, in Congress about this witch hunt. I, Tell me. And so Jim Acosta basically relayed the story to me, and I was very surprised. Of course, I had no knowledge of the Trump Tower meeting with Don Jr. and the other folks. Uh, I would have advised them against it. Uh, but it's unfortunate it happened, though I would chalk it up to a rookie mistake. Don Jr., didn't really know much about presidential politics. He, he had never been a politician before. Uh, you know, it's a family business. And Mr. Trump didn't have much political experience either. So I think, really, you're talking about rookie mistakes. You uh, got swept up in this because of the uh, Republican Party platform fight. One of the um, reasons I got swept uh, up. That's certainly the, the, uh, you know, the, the issue that um, got, got the most attention and put you on the radar because you were the guy who spoke up against the platform amendment that called for providing lethal assistance to the uh, Ukrainian government fighting Russian uh, troops, little green men, uh, in Ukraine. Um, tell us what happened there, why you, um, uh, why you stepped up to, to block that from being in the platform, and who instructed you to do so? Well, that's a great question. There's been a lot of misreporting about that from folks like Business Insider and TPM and others, um, Raw Story, and others that are really just out to defame people, unfortunately. Basically, what happened is um, at the GOP platform, which is um, it's a proper noun, it's a 66-page document uh, that gets renewed every four years with the, the party um, that's, that's coming into power, with the, the presidential candidate that's coming into power. So the role of the campaign is to be in all the six different rooms because the GOP platform is divided into six different categories. One of them is national security. And you have delegates assigned to each of the six rooms. So my role was to be assigned there as the policy representative, as the national security advisor to the campaign. And I had a political whip to my right, and I had two Jones, Do Jones Day lawyers to my left. And we were in our assigned places, um, and that's how it works for all GOP 
conventions and platforms. This is the week prior to the GOP convention. So my job was to ensure that the GOP platform reflected the candidates' views. Now, the draft was actually done in Washington. It was done by the RNC with campaign inputs, including my inputs. Now, that's how it is as well for every campaign that ever has a GOP platform, all of them. Every four years, it's the same process. So my role was to ensure that the delegates understood what Mr. Trump's position was on certain matters of national security. Now, we had a tough position against Russia in the GOP platform, in the draft GOP platform. It was tough. It was tougher than the Democrat platform. Um, the 22 delegates were in the room, and one of them, Diana Denman from Texas, an 82-year-old cruise delegate, introduced an amendment, a proposed amendment, uh, which was very long, and it included words to provide lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine. Well, my role was to be able to communicate with the uh, co-chairman, and I did communicate with the co-chairman, which was my authorized role to do. And who was that? It was a, a gentleman named Steve Yates, who was the uh, party chairman of the uh, Idaho Republicans, and he had been a national security uh, advisor to Vice President Cheney. And so... Uh, Mr. Yates approached me at my side table, which was the protocol to do, and he talked to me about the issue, and I said that that wasn't Mr. Trump's positions. He stated it on the campaign. He didn't want World War III of Ukraine. He stated that to me months before, in March, actually. So months before, President Trump never talked to me about the GOP platform. President Trump wasn't involved in the details of the GOP platform. He just wanted it to go smoothly. That's about it. Can, so, I, can I just interrupt sure. you there very briefly when you said Trump told you he didn't want World War III over the Ukraine? Uh, over Ukraine, uh, Explain the context there. Where were you? Uh, how did that conversation come up? And what was the point that uh, Trump was trying to make? Sure. Well, that was in the same meeting where George Papadopoulos had uh, suggested this meeting with Putin. It was the, the March 31 the meeting. The March 31 at meeting. The post office, yeah. Right. It was a couple hour brief with uh, the national security team and. Mr. Trump made a lot of statements. He asked a lot of questions, and I thought they were very insightful questions, and he was very interested in hearing what we had to say. And at that meeting, Mr. Trump said he didn't want World War III of Ukraine. And that's been widely reported, but he also said that on the campaign trail. He said that many times. So what I was doing with the co-chairman was just to reiterate Mr. Trump's position. So Steve Yates basically, through the day, um, went through the proposed amendments. We had over 50 proposed amendments. This was just one proposed amendment. And part of that amendment was defeated to strike the words lethal defensive weapons. So what she proposed to say was not included in the GOP platform. The GOP platform was never changed. Yet because of people like Rachel Maddow and others that really don't know what they're talking about, A, or B, patently misrepresent the facts and are dishonest, which is, I think it's a mixture of both from different people. Um, the, the legend has become the GOP platform was changed by the Trump campaign and J.D. Gordon changed it. That's not true. It's patently false. Have you been qu questioned by Mueller's people about this? I've been questioned about uh, the, the uh, investigators from all the groups I've been before. The the House Intelligence Committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, the special counsel. But they weren't particularly interested in the platform other than to hear what I had to say about it just because it's been the news, in the news so often. And, and that's one of my points, Mike, is the news, the media often drive the narrative. So it's worse what you see in the news than when you actually see at the hearing. They just, they just want to say, OK, well, what happened again at the platform? We read this. We read that. Tell us again. Diana Denman basically got sucked into it, too. Even though she started this, she ended up having to hire a second legal team, not just her lawyer in Texas. She had to hire a new uh, legal team in Washington, D.C., a white-collar lawyer to come in and def defend herself, too. Diana Denman, the 82-year-old delegate, got sucked into it. I don't think she, uh, she uh, liked what happened, but you never know. Once you start going down these roads and introduce it to the Washington Post, which dishonestly reported about it, because the Washington Post started this with an opinion column by Josh Rogan, you know, uh, who had a story that if you took out the headline, stands up to scrutiny today. It was the headline that was wrong. The headline said, Trump campaign guts GOP platform on Ukraine. That's entirely false. But if you strip out the headline, Josh Rogan's story still stands up today. Uh, J.D., tell us a little bit about your interview with, uh, with the special counsel's office. Who, who interviewed you? How long was the interview? And what can you um, glean uh, from the questions that you got and the tone 
um, uh, you know, about about the special uh, counsel investigation. What, what's your what was your takeaway after you left uh, that process? Well, Dan, I don't talk about the specifics of any uh, investigations um, or any investigators or groups I've been. By the way, as 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 a witness, you are. Uh, you're you're permitted to do so. I am permitted um, to do so, though, out of the out of respect for the office of the special counsel. Not shared by President Trump, by the way. <laughs> well, I speak for myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I would just say it's a very serious investigation, and I would say that it's like a, a trawling expedition where they're trying to get as much information from as many people as possible. They'll come to their conclusions and uh, do whatever they need to do. Uh, now, four people, at least right now, are most likely going to go to prison for things unrelated to the reason, the purported reason for this entire investigation, which was Russian interference in the election and alleged collusion. Now, Paul Manafort, who was our campaign chairman, who served on the campaign from March to August, uh, and his deputy, Rick Gates, they were instrumental in the campaign. But the things they're being charged with have nothing to do with collusion whatsoever. These are past financial crimes. And then uh, two others, uh, one was a surrogate on the campaign, General Michael Flynn. He actually wasn't part of the campaign. General Flynn was a surrogate. Well, well, him and George Papadopoulos, just let me finish the thought briefly, they were strong-armed yeah. into, into saying they made false statements to investigators, uh, to the FBI. So they were strong-armed into guilty pleas, and they'll likely go to prison too. So four people going to prison for nothing related to the stated reason for the investigation. If, if, if well, Trump doesn't so pardon if, him, by uh, the way. Um. Separate yeah. issue. So you think this is a, a a negative trend that that in in some ways people. I mean, you talked about at the beginning of your op-ed piece in USA Today. You talked about this being an effort to politically destroy uh, Trump. Um, and you've talked about, I think, in other pieces you've written written the criminalization of policy, which I think is in some ways what you were just getting at. But you think this is a negative trend. Uh, in some ways, uh, that both sides are responsible for, and and both and both sides are are victims of. Is is that is that fair? Uh, yeah, to say? I would say so, Dan. I believe that. Um, I don't know um, in the case of President Clinton in the '90s whether they had about 50 Clinton associates be summoned before the Independent Council and all these congressional committees. But that's what's happened to Trump associates, and we're incurring millions of dollars uh, in in our own uh, uh, legal costs. Fortunately, Michael Caputo, my good friend from the campaign and colleague, uh, has uh, generously reimbursed my legal bills. They were in the five figures. And thank goodness to him because he has a GoFundMe page. And he's raised $324,000 at last count because his legal bills were 125000 So thank God for Michael. Anybody else whose uh, legal bills he's reimbursed? He's looking at other cases, too. Uh, he and I have been brainstorming over who would be the most uh, likely uh, beneficiaries of that. And I know Michael's reaching out to some folks because a lot of people have been unfairly targeted. Let me ask you, you, you are uh, basically uh, defending the Trump campaign here, um, yet you weren't treated very well by the campaign. Uh, and in fact, you left uh, not you left the campaign shortly after that platform uh, uh, fight. Um, tell us the circumstances uh, uh, by which you came to leave the campaign uh, and um, uh, how that came about. Well, yeah, it was uh, about 100 hours a week, and uh, the agreement was that the campaign would pay after uh, the GOP convention in July when he formally got the nomination, and they didn't. And So you got stiffed. Well, you got stiffed by Donald Trump. The issue is, do I support him more than Hillary Clinton? Yes, I do. So well, Hillary Clinton didn't stiff you. She didn't. She didn't. But I think he's better for the country than Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think when Republicans, too, and this is sort of the real politic aspect of the sort of skullduggery that goes on in this town, Mike, and that you and I, I have like the about word. a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a great word, great <laughs> term, is mm -hmm. what good does it do Republicans to bash Mr. Trump. Look at what happened to Senator Flake. He's out. He, he He's on the way down. What happened to Senator Corker, even the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? He's on the way out. Martha Roby, even a congresswoman from Alabama. Now she has a primary challenge because she criticized Trump. It For Republicans in this town, it doesn't really do a lot of good to bash President Trump, whether it's justified or not. Well, that's a political calculation. It's not a moral calculation. Are there are there any red lines? What how, what what if he fires uh, 
what if he fires Mueller? What if he fires Mueller and Rosenstein and you know and Sessions and pardons and himself, all the top leader, and then pardons himself? Well, that's a hypothetical. He hasn't done it. Well, he's talked about it. Well, he said he's he said he can. Well, he can. He has the the, the legal authority to do so, but he hasn't done it. JD, do you do you, do you think uh, do you believe that the that the Russians uh, the Russian government uh, were trying to manipulate um, our election and we're trying to help uh, uh, Donald Trump get elected? From what I know now, yes, I believe that. Okay. So isn't that a serious matter that uh, the FBI should have been looking at? Of course it is. So you accept that there was a legitimate reason for the FBI to open up a counterintelligence investigation in the summer of 2016? Uh, Yes, I do. However, this is where you get into the skullduggery of Washington. Director Comey at the FBI said in front of the entire country on March uh, 2017, during March 2017, he told Adam Schiff during a hearing that I believe was five hours long that the entire Trump campaign is under a counterintelligence investigation to see if there are any ties to Russia and to see if any criminal acts were, were committed. In the course of that, however, Director Comey knew that there were only about three or four people being talked about, being being discussed. We know today that was Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, General Flynn, and Paul Manafort. However, Director Comey didn't say who. He refused to talk about anybody. That put President Trump and everybody on down, including me, under a cloud of suspicion for alleged nefarious activity. So the media, like CNN and the Washington Post and others, put my name and picture in all these graphs and charts suggesting that, well, J.D. Gordon met with the Russian ambassador. J.D. Gordon changed the GOP platform. And these were all disingenuous. These were misleading lies and and, and reprehensible. They should be held accountable. CNN and the Washington Post should be held held accountable for defamation. Um, Are you considering a defamation lawsuit? There have been a number of things uh, in the work, works, um, but nothing specific right now against the CNN and the Washington Post. There's no pending litigation that I have against anyone, okay. though it remains an option. Uh, two more questions just to uh, wrap up here. One is um, you worked very closely with Jeff Sessions. Yes. Uh, he was your boss when you were in the campaign. When you see President Trump's abuse of his attorney general, really unprecedented, talking about he wished he would have picked somebody else uh, if he'd known he was going to recuse himself, something Justice Department ethics advisors told him he had to do, he wouldn't have chosen him. Um, what goes through your mind? Well, it's painful to see. I understand President Trump's frustrations. He just wants this to go away. He knows it's a hoax and it's a made-up thing. President Trump's right about the, the the targeting of him. But I feel very bad for the attorney general because he's a— uh, a great patriot. He's one of the most honorable people I've ever met in my life, one of the nicest guys I've ever worked with in my life, and he's been unfairly targeted by all sides. Though the consolation for him is at least he's the attorney general. I have five-figure legal bills, thank God paid for now, but I got nothing. Well, you're also um, going on a speaking tour. Um, Tell us about that. Thank you very much, Michael, for bringing that up. I appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, Michael Caputo and I will be doing a speaking tour later this year. We're working out the logistics of it right now, and uh, hopefully you can join your program again to tell you more, or maybe you can announce it when we have something more concrete to offer. However, I can tell you that as apart from that, I am speaking at a televised town hall at Oxford University. Uh, on July 13th, the same day that President Trump will be visiting London. It'll sort of be the bizarro version, bizarro world version of the James Comey town hall at William & Mary, where James Comey attacked President Trump and defended himself. I'll be defending myself and attacking people like James Comey who attacked me. Well, we like uh, we like bizarro worlds uh, here on Skullduggery. (laughs) Um, J.D., thanks for joining us, and uh, we hope to have you back. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you, J.D. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. Ben Rhodes, um, congratulations on the book and welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. Good to be with you guys. Hey, Ben. Um, so let's start with a, on, a, on a cheerful note. Um, you, How does it feel to have all or most of your most important work undone by the current occupant of the Oval Office, uh, the Iran deal, uh, the uh, 
Paris, Paris climate, climate deal. deal, Accord, uh, the opening to Cuba. What does that feel like? You invested so much in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, pretty awful. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I do have to say that, you know, you do find perspective. Uh, and you also realize that there are different gradations to this. So, yeah, the Iran deal, that's kind of a black or white issue. You're in or you're out. And having spent, you know, seven or eight years, and as I describe in the book, like taking a lot of lumps to get that done, um, you know, it's pretty painful to see it undone. The other stuff, though, you know, Paris is still the way in which the rest of the world is going to deal with climate change and the next president can come back in. And Cuba, I think, you know, he hasn't really rolled back. Um, and we broke a kind of you know, psychic barrier. As I described, so much of that was just, you know, showing that the United States and Cuba could kind of cross this psychological hurdle to not be enemies anymore. And I, I feel like there's no going back on that. So, uh, you know, in some of these things, you you learn to get out of this crazy day-to-day, minute-to-minute, tweet-to-tweet cycle that we're in, and you can take a bit of a longer view. And, and when you do that, it's not quite as bad <laughs> as it can feel. Did it feel at the time, let me just add, uh, at the time, did it feel like what you were doing had real permanence? Uh, I mean, I guess later in the, in the second term, uh, you all and most of the rest of uh, the world thought that Hillary Clinton was going to be president, um, and obviously that didn't happen. But do you think when you were actually um, uh, you know, going through these things and, and building these kinds of achievements um, that uh, you've changed the world for, for, for good, or do you, do you at some level think that this could be fleeting? I think that, you know, you learn over the course of eight years that everything is fleeting in a world that is, you know, presenting challenges as diverse as the Arab Spring and the rise of China. Um, You know, the Iran deal always felt like it was going to be threatened by hardliners in Iran, hardliners in the United States, um, potential regional conflicts in the Middle East. You know, there you're just trying to – we were trying to avoid a war with Iran and prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon um, and to make that stick for as long as we could. And I would have hoped that it stuck for longer than two years. Um, but then some of the things that you do have a more intangible quality. And so I remember going to the Vatican with the Cubans to tell them that we'd reached these agreements and they were going to be, you know, the guarantor um, and that we'd established diplomatic relations and, and – that was a turning of a page that you can't really turn back. Um, and, and so it's not so much permanence as, as much as it is, uh, you know, you've changed the dynamic around something. And just as Paris changes the dyna- dynamic for climate and how the world deals with it. So nothing is, is ever on the you know completely firm foundation. I think we did, I mean, to, you know, to acknowledge the, the rightness of your question, you know, I think we did probably um, – assume that Hillary was going to win certainly in those final weeks. Um, and so most of my mind, mind space in like September and October of 2016 was planning for how do we work with the incoming Clinton uh, team to, to protect and build on these achievements. Uh, and my mindset on you know November 9th was very different. Uh, let me ask you about your uh rather arresting prologue in which um, uh, you talk about after the election, Obama turns to you and says, what if we were wrong? Uh, you seem to be somewhat surprised by the question, ask him wrong about what? And you know, Obama says, maybe we push too far. But you return to uh, that line at the end of the chapter, what if we were wrong? Uh, which does seem to betray some doubts on your part. And I want to ask you what you think you might have been wrong about. Well, you know, it was an arresting scene because it was, it was already going to be a kind of profound moment because we were driving in the presidential limo uh, to the Air Force One uh, at the end of his final foreign trip. So this is it for Barack Obama representing America around the world when he kind of offers this uh, really profound self-reflection on the aftermath of the election. What he's really referring there to there is essentially, you know, the Obama presidency had played out with, uh, you know, a sense of, you know, we stand for a progressive and inclusive brand of politics at home, and we stand for essentially a global, globalist approach to 
solving problems around the world. Um, and we were confronted, whether it was a Tea Party at home or Vladimir Putin or all manner of extremism abroad, by kind of a more revanchist form of tribalism throughout our, our presidency. And, you know, I think our presumption was that, you know, the, the arc of history moves in the direction of progress. Um, but what he, I think, was really speaking to was the fact that the, the change that had taken place in the United States and, and many parts of the West over not just his presidency, but the last several decades with immigration and trade and, and you know, more global integration generally, um, that that got ahead of people's desire to be secure in their own identities and their own tribe. That's what, um, that's what Obama said to you, but, but you asked yeah. the question yourself. And yeah. uh, I want to separate you, if it's possible, from Obama here. Uh, yeah. When you say, what if we were wrong, what are you thinking of um, by posing that question? Well, honestly, like, and this may sound, you know, pessimistic, but wrong in the belief that, that things are going to move in the right direction, or what I believe to be the right direction. You know, I went to work for this 2008 campaign with all kind of hopeful idealism that this was going to change the world for the better, and that, you know, if given the choice between the brand of politics that Barack Obama represents and what I believe is the kind of toxic frankly racist, backward-looking brand of politics that Trump represents, you know, that the world is going to tilt in the direction of, of, of what Obama stood for. And so it's more, you know, what I was wrestling with there is what if we were wrong that you know, maybe the arc of history doesn't always bend in the direction of, of progress, and, and uh, what if uh, what Trump and Putin represent um, is the future? Um, that, to me, is the real kind of haunting question. Ben, let me let me follow up on this because, in some ways, um, one of the starker examples of this uh, is is the Arab Spring and the Obama administration's response um, to turmoil um, in the Middle East. Um, and uh, you know, you all were faced with the uh, you know hugely important question of what to do, uh, you know, with Mubarak and other Arab leaders, uh, despots actually, um, whether to push them aside. Or to practice real politic um, um, and kind of cold-blooded pragmatism, and stay with them for the sake of stability. Uh, and we know uh, what you ended up doing. Um, and uh, historians will debate what what effect that had um, over the longer term. But Hillary Clinton, um, Secretary of State at the time, um, criticized, I think, implicitly. You and some of the younger uh, people in in the Obama administration, um, and I think the quote was that you all were swept up um, in the drama and idealism of the moment. Um, essentially, that that you were naive. Um, is that is that a fair criticism? I think it's fair that we were definitely um, swept up in the moment. Um, I, I frankly believe that number one, you know, Mubarak. Uh, it's not like he was going to be able to weather that storm. Um, so there was a kind of stability argument that we had to try to figure out how to husband the uh, transition here. Um, what I think we got wrong in Egypt specifically is that we never really went all in in one direction. We got caught in the middle. You know, we were not neither all real politics or all idealism. We we did the idealistic thing at the beginning, and then we immediately pivoted to the real politic thing. The end of the story might have been the same, nonetheless, which is you know an Egyptian military government. Um, but there, I think that the mistake that we made was was really not sticking with one of those two courses. We kind of veered in, in the direction of idealism, but then kind of reverted back to the way the U.S. government had dealt with this. Uh, so that that tension was very much a part of your fascinating account of the debate about 
Syria, and in particular, um, the uh, whether to respond to the uh, sarin gas attack by Assad. And um, uh, I don't know how much of this was was known at the time, but I was I was very interested to learn that you initially wanted to respond forcefully uh, to uh, that attack by the Assad regime. Uh, you had been an ally of Samantha Power, who had wanted to inject responsibility to protect into the uh, Nobel speech uh, that um, Obama gave. Um, and yet uh, Obama, um, for lack of a better word, flinched. He uh, decided once the Brits, uh, the House of Commons rejected it, he wasn't going to have uh, British support and Republican criticism on the Hill. Uh, he chose not to respond and to um, uh, defer to Congress. As you look back on it uh, today, after all the catastrophe of the Syrian civil war, uh, the millions of refugees, the hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed, um, the continuation of the Assad regime, um, how do you feel about um, what happened there? Well, as I described, the... You know, I had been a proponent of action, and it kind of grew out of the position I'd taken on the whole Arab Spring. I supported the break with Mubarak. I supported uh, the intervention in Libya, uh, and I had argued in the Situation Room um, to to act in Syria. And I, I detected even before that uh, red line episode that Obama had become more and more skeptical that we could shape events, particularly militarily, inside of Syria or Libya. Um, that there were just fault lines running through these societies that U.S. airstrikes weren't going to put back together. Um, and I had some, and I described in the book, some pretty intense conversations with him where, where you know, I would challenge him, we're, we're not doing enough. And, and he he would come back and again and again to the point that we have to understand that there are limits to what we can do. Um, and the red line episode, you know, I think what he was really testing, uh, Mike, was there's the question of whether or not we can justify acting but then there's a question of whether I can succeed in acting. And, you know, he was getting called by Angela Merkel saying she couldn't be with him. And David Cameron saying that the parliament had literally voted to prevent him from taking this action. And he was getting threatened uh, by Republicans that it would be unconstitutional. And, and he literally said to us that he thought he could face impeachment if he if he acted with a letter like that from the Speaker of the House. And, you know, that's not to say it was a dodge. It's to say that he was calculating you know, if I have no international support or congressional support and I launch airstrikes, that is likely to start a much bigger conflict in Syria. Am I going to be in a position to succeed? Uh, and frankly, we've seen with Trump's airstrikes that, you know, airstrikes were not going to solve the problem. Like the, yeah. we would have had to go in much heavier. So I don't uh, I don't really second guess that decision. Um, what I do what? wrestle with in the in the book is, you know, everybody frames it around that one decision. You know, I, in 2011 and 2012, diplomatically, you know, is there something that we could have done? Had we fully thought through what our strategy was when we called, issued a statement calling for Assad to step down? Um, you know, I think it's easy to look at the red line thing as the only inflection point because that's the one that got a lot of attention. But, you know, frankly, by then, the civil war was already raging. And, and I think a lot of the history of this should look back at, uh, the, the the early days of that conflict and, and whether there was something that could have been done. Yeah, of course, we can never know what might have happened if an alternative course was taken. But um, when Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg, I'm very proud of this moment, his decision not to respond to the chemical weapons attack, what, what was your reaction when you saw those words? Well, I, 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 I've heard him say it. In private, um, so I wasn't surprised. I think he's speaking, you know, really narrowly there of this question of not feeling like he he was going to bring us into a war that he, as commander in chief, couldn't see a successful outcome to, you know, just be, for the sake of, uh, you know, kind of preserving his credibility in the in the in the day to day politics of Washington. Hey Ben, I want to uh, go back to um, your. Um, debates with Obama um, over uh, Syria and actually uh, kind of subtle efforts uh, to uh, kind of push him uh, in your direction um, on the policy. Um, some might even call it, um, you know, a, a bit of um, sort of manipulation. Uh, I love the anecdote about you bringing in 
a group of a group a group of reporters uh, to talk to him, which is something that you you uh, I'm sure did a fair amount. But this was not the typical uh, you know group. This was not you know the 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 uh, David Ignatius and Tom Friedman. These were reporters who'd been on the ground uh, in in Syria uh, and and in the region and who had some sympathy for the people on the ground there. So tell us a little bit about that. What you were trying to do? Yeah, it's, it, it, I'm glad you noticed that, Dan. You know, I it, this is you know shortly after the re-election. So obviously, I knew we, you know he'd be kind of weighing all these things. And again, I had been very much an activist about the Arab Spring and about Syria and. We get occasionally this time where you can bring in, you know, columnists and reporters and, and have these off the record sessions with him. And again, you're right. Usually you'd kind of bring in uh, like the leading columnists and hopefully Obama can persuade them that, you know, what he's doing is, is right or at least not that wrong. Um, but what I did is I kind of assembled this eclectic group of people who I respected, who were all very much, you know, covering the Middle East. They were kind of foreign correspondents or people you know, we're very close to uh, activists on the ground who I knew would paint a very dire picture for him of the situation in Syria and the situation in the region and the frustration with the U.S. in action. And, you know, because presidents don't sometimes they don't get access to a lot of voices outside of their own government. And frankly, our own government um, was expressing a lot of caution on Syria. The military wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and so I kind of assembled this group and they, one after another, do exactly what I thought they would do, which is paint a very dire picture of how how terrible the situation is, how complex it is, the different forces in Syria who are fighting each other on the ground. And, you know, after it was done, you know, Obama asked a lot of questions. And I followed him into the Oval Office, you know, thinking that, you know, this might have made him more compelled to act. And we started talking. And I immediately realized that the picture that the, the people had painted, the journalists had painted, was so complex and dire that it had the opposite effect, you know, that Obama was essentially saying to me, this is actually why I don't think that we can get involved. I don't think we can solve this problem. Um, and I even followed him back into his, you know, kind of dining room, which I rarely did. And we had a bit of a back, heated back and forth where I was saying, look, the, these huge events are playing out and, you know, it, the seismic geopolitical shift is taking place. And, and I remember I said, you know, our actions are down here. And I kind of pointed down towards the ground. And, you know, Obama came back at me and essentially said, um, look, we, we, we can pick our spots and I'm going to try to do what I can to uh, uh, to you know, try to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon or promote you know, peace deal with the Palestinians. Or, but we can't solve these problems. And he actually ended on, you know, we like to quote movies back and forth to each other a lot with the, the iconic line from Lawrence of Arabia, you know, young men wage war and then old men make peace. Yeah, um, right. Uh, kind of an ultimate realist uh, slogan. And uh, it wasn't out of any lack, and I want to be very clear, this is not out of any lack of empathy for what people are going through in Syria. Um, it was out of a just profound belief that he had that, you know, you've got a civil war with all kinds of different forces fighting each other, with foreign proxies from Russia and Iran and other parts of the region involved, that he thought that if the United States win, we would just be one more actor in that conflict. Let me... Um, yeah. Ben, if I could ask you about uh, about Russia and the response to the Russian attack on the election. And I was um, surprised to read uh, uh, your account uh, in which you were uh, kept deliberately kept out of the process of the NSC's uh, deliberations about how to respond to that Russian attack. In fact, uh, you talk about uh, how you had been you were being kept out of the most important conversation of of all. Uh, my mind raced with a mix of self-pity and self-blame. Um, now, as you know, uh, the Obama White House has taken a lot of criticism for not um, uh, coming up with a more forceful response in real time uh, to what the Russians were doing during the 2016 election. If you had been in the room, uh, would the uh, response have been any different? Yeah, I mean, the point I'm, I was making, Mike, too, is that kind of you learn in government that who's in the room kind of dictates what's on the agenda. And you know, not only was I not in the room, but nobody who focused on communications was in the room. So we had all dealt with the Russian 
information war in Ukraine for years, um, since 2014, when we saw them right. develop these capabilities. Yeah, you were the guy who thought, knew most about what the Russians were doing, their manipulation of social media and their propaganda machine. That's exactly right. And, and Jen Psaki, who is our communications director, had literally been the target of a Russian disinformation campaign for years. And instead, our government kind of put it in a box of cybersecurity. You know, this is they hacked something, they released it. We have to protect the election infrastructure. And so my concern, and when I look back and, and second guess our response, is that the conversation was about cybersecurity and how do we protect our election systems? How do we understand the hacking? And if you look at the October statement from the intelligence community, it doesn't say anything about fake news. Uh, all it talks about is that the Russians hacked and uh, released some of this material, which I think was only a small piece of their information war. So, you know, I think if not, maybe not just me, but if, if somebody with that communication perspective had been in the room, there might have been more attention on, you know, this this other set of capabilities that we had been living with from Ukraine for years that they were deploying in the United States because essentially they took their war machine that they built in Ukraine and just brought it to America in 2016. So to from, be fair, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say so. From, to, to, go ahead, man. You go. Okay. Uh, well, to be fair, I was just going to say that. Look, even if we had been there, the, the the dirty secret is the U.S. government doesn't have any real capability to stop that type of information war you know it's not like we can play goalkeeper on people's facebook feeds but you could but you could call people out on it let me just ask you from today's perspective uh, do you agree with some of your colleagues uh who now say um we blew it in not coming up with a more forceful response i you know i i believe that we should have done more to spotlight the information piece. Um, now, and I said, you know, I, I raised this with Obama and I described in the book, you know, boy, first I said, we're not, you know, we're not focused on this fake news. And then, you know, we're going to be criticized for not focusing on this. His belief was that essentially the Russians had found soft spots in our media and society such that if we were calling that out, you know, the people who consume that fake news aren't going to listen to Obama anyway. Trump's going to say it's rigged. Um, so, look, I, my own view is we, we could have done more and said more about certainly the information war, the fake news dissemination. Um, I also see his perspective that that might not have made a difference. Um, so to me, it'd be overly, sim overly simplifying to say if we had spoken out more, it would have led to a totally different outcome. But I do think that, you know, we should have. And I also think that it, it speaks to the problem going forward, which is the U.S. government doesn't have tools to prevent yeah. information. Yeah. Ben, I want to actually that that's the point that I wanted to come back to, because uh, because that is a hugely important kind of policy point going forward, including, you know, these midterm elections that we're going into. And I'm actually going to read a short section from your book here about this kind of asymmetry that you talk about. You say, whoever did my job in Russia was sitting on top of, of, of billion-dollar investments in television stations, marshaled an army of Internet trolls who populated social media and was empowered to lie with impunity. I had five people working in the NSC press office and my own official Twitter feed. U.S. government broadcasting has a legal firewall against editorial direction from the White House. It took lengthy meetings and email chains to declassify information to debunk Russian narratives. Uh, well, that uh, we, we just don't seem matched at all, uh, well at all, for, for what the Russians are capable of doing. Um, and what do we do about that? Well, um, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, we had tried to build some mechanism in the government to deal with this. Um, we had, you know, a kind of a coordinating cell at the State Department at the end that was beginning to be funded, you know, with 40 or $50 million uh, to essentially at least have the capacity to be better at spotting Russian disinformation and calling it out. Um, and that was completely defunded, zeroed out by the Trump administration. Um, I think that what we need to do is, first of all, this is not just a problem for us. It's a problem across Europe. And a lot of Europeans are thinking a lot about this. And so I think there needs to be essentially a united front between the United States and Europe and, and deeply coordinated efforts uh, among our governments to be able to spot and call out uh, Russian disinformation campaigns and to combat Russian disinformation. 
I think there needs to be a effort with the tech sector, like we had on terrorism. You know, with the, on with terrorism, there's been a multi-year discussion with Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, even the encryption uh, apps about you know what are the what are the red lines here and how do we keep this content off your platforms? And frankly, I, I you know I don't think Facebook has had anywhere near the 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 in, in interaction with the government and frankly the scrutiny that is necessary to say, look, it's not enough to just kind of mouth words about this. Um, you know, having your platform essentially hijacked for the purposes of a foreign adversary waging information war is something that we need to deal with just as aggressively as we dealt with ISIS using uh, social media. And I don't see that happening yet either. And, and again, I don't think government would have all the answers. I think with uh, terrorism, we found that the tech companies had some very good answers um, and, and things that, that they could preserve their ethos of an open Internet while also being able to at least identify, um, if not take down, um, information that was coming from a, a foreign adversary like this. Um, um, so that, it, yeah, that's not happening at all, though. All right. Um, well, um, uh, Ben Rhodes, thanks. Uh, I, I really appreciated uh, your comments, uh, particularly at the end, although I think you may have foreclosed the possibility of you going to work for Facebook um, in your <laughs> post-government career. Uh, yeah, all my other colleagues in the Obama administration are already out in San Francisco, so yeah. I don't know that there's a place for me anyway. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, guys. Thanks to J.D. Gordon and Ben Rhodes for joining us this week. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Sirius XM subscribers, you can now listen to Skullduggery on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So check it out. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.